Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that On Becoming is on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. It's always great to hear from those of you who've let me know that you're enjoying the podcast. Our email address is OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. As I've said before, we're always interested in knowing about which aspects of the podcast particularly resonate with you. If you're enjoying the podcast, I invite you to follow or subscribe to the podcast. That's a small thing that really makes a difference. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Many thanks to you who've indicated your appreciation by way of support, as well as those of you who've reached out and let me know that you're enjoying the podcast. We've been talking about Christian nationalism, which is not exactly equivalent to evangelicalism. There are many evangelicals who would not support something called Christian nationalism, even though they might share some of the same beliefs. Today, though, I'd like to talk about evangelical higher education. There's a group of conservative Christian schools known as the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, CCCU. That group includes more than 185 colleges, universities, and seminaries, mostly in the United States and Canada, though there are others sprinkled around the world. The CCCU website says that CCCU institutions are accredited comprehensive colleges and universities whose missions are Christ-centered and rooted in the historic Christian faith. I taught at one of those schools, Wheaton College, for over two decades. Just to be clear, that's the one in Illinois, not the one in Massachusetts. It's always interesting when people confuse the two. For instance, the anchor of the NBC Today Show, Ann Curry, gave the commencement address at the Wheaton in Massachusetts, citing famous alumni such as Billy Graham, Wes Craven, and Dennis Hastert. She very quickly learned that these were graduates of the other Wheaton. But I've also taught or done research at a wide variety of institutions, including the University of Nottingham and St. Andrews University in the United Kingdom, the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium, Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Some evangelical schools were founded long before the fundamentalist modernist controversy that began in the early part of the 20th century. Others were founded as a direct response to it. In both cases, though, that meant that the mainline churches and schools became the preserve of what fundamentalists call liberals. In practice, this meant that if you were an evangelical theologian, you had to publish your stuff with one of the evangelical publishers, like Baker or IVP or Zondervan. That was still the case when I was a college student that was already starting to change. Evangelical theology began to be taken more seriously as it became less insular. Of course, if you listen to the interview with John D. Caputo, you may remember that his publisher, Indiana University Press, was suddenly flustered many years ago when they realized that he taught at a Catholic school. Fortunately, they went ahead and published his book titled Radical Hermeneutics. That was in 1987. That's right around the time that publishing opportunities for evangelical scholars were opening up. In 1978, for instance, William Olson, a distinguished analytic philosopher, led a group of evangelical, reformed, and Roman Catholic philosophers, serious philosophers, I should add, to form the Society of Christian Philosophers, 
and that led to the formation of the journal Faith and Philosophy, one of the premier journals of philosophy of religion. I have been and continue to be on the board of editorial consultants for that journal. One of those scholars was Arthur F. Holmes, who was my teacher. Holmes was one of those rare kinds of people who were able to thread the needle, that is, be an actual philosopher, but not get into too much trouble with the administration. It was he who moved the subject of philosophy from the Bible department to its own department. Of course, such a move had to be approved by the board of trustees, and so he was summoned to appear before them. One of them read from a statement about the college, something about everything that would be studied would be read through a Christian lens. When that person asked Holmes if the philosophy department would fit into that description, he simply responded, I wrote that description. Holmes had started an annual philosophy conference back in the 1950s, which is a remarkable feat for that time. He also had the vision of teaching a hundred students who would go to graduate school and become professional philosophers. He surpassed that goal, and I am one of the 115 students that he taught who went on to become academic philosophers. I wish I had asked Art more about what it would have been like trying to teach philosophy at an evangelical institution back in the 1950s. One of my colleagues, Mark Knoll, wrote a book titled The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. The first chapter begins as follows. The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Yet those words are preceded by these words in the preface. This book is an epistle from a wounded lover. As one who is in love with the life of the mind, but who has also been drawn to the faith of Jesus through the love of evangelical Protestants, I find myself in a situation where wounding is commonplace. Those words, the combination of love and wounding, well describe my own sojourn in the evangelical world. Part of that wounding, of course, is due to the fact that the evangelical community is generally anti-intellectual. I thought of how I could say that in a kinder way, but unfortunately that's the best I can do. The practical ramifications of that anti-intellectualism are profound. Academics who teach at such institutions often feel not exactly supported by the administration, the trustees, and the people who give money to the place to keep it running. When the school decided to have a business major, Holmes worried that the moves like that would lead to less of an emphasis on the liberal arts, which I think is what did happen. In his article titled The Opening of the Evangelical Mind, Alan Wolf examines the state of evangelical thinking by considering a number of schools, including the one where I taught. In his view, the students at my former institution, and now I'm quoting, are as outstanding as any students in America. And he makes the point that in terms of SAT scores and National Merit Scholars, the school is in the same league as Oberlin College or the University of Virginia. I'm not quite sure why he chose those schools for comparison. He says that campus life resembles that of the 1960s. Here again, I'm quoting, when students and a few professors convinced that they had embarked on a mission of internal importance, debated ideas as if life really depended on the answers they came up with. I think that very well described my experience. Remember, of course, that I taught in the philosophy department where questioning things was part of my job. That, of course, meant that students who were questioning things were likely to choose philosophy as a major. 
For most evangelical students, going to college is their first real opportunity to question their beliefs. So it was a joy to teach those students. I ended up sending far more students to graduate school than any of my colleagues in the department. While my students went to many different graduate schools, there were two universities who were particularly popular with students. Representatives of both of those universities told me numerous times that they hoped more of my students would apply because they all did so well. One of those universities actually wrote to me to propose that we establish a joint relationship between the schools in the sense of creating a junior year abroad kind of program. But that idea didn't go anywhere. As one administrator told me, the problem came down to this. Students might drink beer while they're away. Yep, I'm not making that up. But teaching in the philosophy department at evangelical school means you are under constant surveillance. I was in the middle of teaching a year-long history of philosophy course when I said something I shouldn't have said. It was simply this. The Bible doesn't say anything about why God created the world. Within a few hours, I was summoned to the dean. She was a dear friend and was extremely kind to me over the years, but she said to me that I simply couldn't say that. When I countered by saying, well, it's true, the Bible has no passage that says God created the world in order to blah, 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 blah. As a Lutheran, she said that she believed that God created the world out of love and the desire for fellowship with his creation. That sounded fine to me, though I've always thought that God should be able to get along just fine without creating anything. Of course, I'd much prefer that sort of explanation than the one that is common in reform circles, that God created the world so that he could have creatures to praise him. Yes, I am not making that up. But such an answer is so problematic. Is God really so insecure that he needs to create beings to tell him how wonderful he is? That sounds like a tremendously needy God, one which seems to be at odds with whatever you would think God would have to be. On this view, he seems to be the ultimate narcissist. How does one practically continue to move away from the angry, fearful world of fundamentalism within an evangelical academic setting? One way is to broaden the curriculum to include more mainstream theology while teaching students theories regarding how the Bible came to be within specific historical and cultural settings. This might seem easy to do, but the reality is exactly the opposite of that. Students generally arrive on campus with the idea that the Bible magically fell from the sky. So anything along those lines would shake such a view, and so it proved to be tricky. For instance, I used to have my students in my intro class read Plotinus, not at all easy reading. But then I would point out class that the conception of God that Plotinus presents has had enormous influence on how later Christians came to think about God. And yet, Plotinus was technically a pagan philosopher who founded the school known as Neoplatonism. As it turns out, Augustine was very much a Platonist and believed that Plato's philosophy would supply any answers for any subject on which the Bible was silent. In other words, I needed to explain to students that what they thought was in the Bible actually wasn't there at all, and it had only become part of Christian doctrine as the centuries progressed. They weren't expecting to hear that. Of course, I could have simply skipped Plotinus, whose views are strange and difficult. Yet such a formative influence on Christian theology needs, I think, to be acknowledged. One of the aspects that made teaching more difficult than necessary was that all students were required to attend chapel three times per week. The college didn't pay speakers. They considered it a privilege to speak to over 2,000 students, and so they signed people up who were going to be in the area. 
Many of these folks were pastors, some of whom were well-known in the evangelical world. Alas, pastors generally aren't all that sophisticated in their thinking, no, nothing against pastors, which meant that they often said things that were either clearly wrong or else problematic in certain ways. I came to the place where I actually started recommending to some of my students that it would be better if they didn't attend chapel. You might think that, oh, I, the liberal professor, didn't want students to hear from the conservatives. But the most conservative professor in my department had the exact same problem with chapel. Here's a way to put it. In their Old Testament classes, students were learning about Deuter or Isaiah, the view that more than one person had written the book of Isaiah. In their New Testament classes, they were learning about how the biblical canon took shape over many years. In their philosophy classes, they were being offered sophisticated views on many different topics. But the pastors coming to speak weren't speaking at that level, usually as far below that level. I can't tell you how many students said, in one version or another, something along these lines. What we're learning in chapel doesn't fit with what we're hearing in our classes. The dissonance was the simple version of Christianity being put forth in chapel versus the complex and nuanced views of their professors. All along, though, faculty at these institutions realized that there were limits as to just how much they could say and what they could teach, even if those limits were constantly changing and never really perfectly defined as evangelicalism itself continued to change. Yet before we can address that concern, it is important to set these limits in a wider context. Consider the following claim. We know perfectly well that we are not free to say just anything, that we cannot speak of anything when we like or where we like. While that line could easily come from a professor at an evangelical college, it is actually from a lecture that Michel Foucault gave at the Collège de France in 1970. In other words, there are always boundaries, whether we're talking about colleges or Rotary Club or your kid's soccer game. One can argue that the climate, at least in American evangelical colleges and universities, is much more restrictive than it would have been for Foucault in Paris. Today, it's common to hear that political correctness or wokeness restricts speech on college campuses, both by faculty and students, and even speakers who get uninvited if they are perceived to be saying something that one can't say. No doubt these complaints have some basis in fact. Yet in the evangelical world, cancellation is a long-standing tradition. When we'd have the philosophy conference each year, we'd ask one of the people attending to speak in chapel. We extended an invitation to someone who was a card-carrying evangelical, but then had to rescind it once the powers that were discovered that he was an open theist. Up until that point, it hadn't been clear whether open theism was acceptable in the evangelical world. In case you're wondering, open theism is the position that God doesn't know the future because the future hasn't happened yet. The people who hold this position do so on the basis of what the Bible says, along with the idea that human beings have freedom. The problem is that if God knows what you're going to do in the future, then in an important sense that future has already been determined. Open theists contend that such a view makes human beings into robots. Interestingly enough, at a philosophy conference on freedom and determinism, one of the theologians got up, Bible in hand, to make this point. God not only determined that people would sin, but he's also right in punishing them when they sin. To my mind, that sounds like a crazy position, a God who forces you to do something then punishes you for doing it. 
If earthly parents were to do that, I would hope that social services would intervene, for that clearly would be child abuse. But the reality is that he was perfectly free to say that, whereas the open theist had to keep quiet. What I want to pretend you are is accused of being an open theist on the basis of comments made to the administration by two students. I knew it had to be those two students since they had cornered me after class to find out if I were an open theist. To be honest, I've never felt any strong need to have a view on this subject, so I wouldn't have ever counted myself as an open theist. But I did point out to the students that it would be heretical to think that the God of the Bible was the same as Aristotle's unmoved mover. Apparently, for them, that made me an open theist, whereas I thought it simply made me a Christian. Continuing on the subject of inviting speakers, fortunately the administration didn't know that Marilyn McCord Adams, a very famous philosopher, was known for being particularly supportive of her gay students at Yale Divinity School and then at Oxford. Thus she was allowed to speak in chapel. My own hope was that the school would invite speakers who weren't simply evangelicals. To be sure, inviting Slavoj Žižek wasn't exactly the most politically correct thing to do in an evangelical environment. He gave a great talk. Moreover, the room in which he spoke was absolutely packed, people standing against the walls, sitting on the floor, occupying any space they could. I'm told that the provost appeared at the talk because he had never heard of this guy, Žižek. I've already mentioned this invitation in the episode titled, Is Evangelicalism a Cult? The Dispensing of Existence, Part 3. So I won't tell that story here, which involved me getting called in the provost's office both before and after the talk. However, not long after, I arrived at the department's chair's meeting a little late. Yes, I was the chair of the department at that point, and had to sit next to the provost, who decided that he needed to address the kinds of people we were inviting to campus. Zizek was one of the first people mentioned. But another person who had raised eyebrows was a transgender economist who had been bored Donald but now went by Deirdre. No one was suggesting that she wasn't a premier scholar. It was the trans part that got people worked up. The worry was that inviting such people, we were endorsing them. But liberal arts schools shouldn't be in the business of inviting only people they agree with. That's exactly the argument I made in that meeting. After the meeting, I ended up walking back to my office with someone who I thought was probably much more conservative than I was. But then she said to me, wasn't that meeting scary? Aren't we allowed to invite people who don't hold the views of the college? It was at that point I realized that even the more conservative members of the community believed they had an obligation to allow students to hear from various points of view. In the episode I just mentioned, I also tell the story of inviting Cornell West to campus. Again, an entirely packed auditorium. From my viewpoint, West had clearly done his homework on the school and gave a talk that was open and gracious. However, he did mention that race was a problem in society, and that was enough of an irritant for someone to write me a very condescending email that ultimately questioned my intelligence. So what do we make of Foucault's point about discursive limits when applied to the task and identity of evangelical colleges? Some might argue that evangelical colleges actually are more upfront than secular institutions about what can and cannot be said, since the former have doctrinal statements and the latter don't. The thinking behind this line of argumentation is quite simple. Every place has its exclusions and prohibitions, but they are more explicit at evangelical colleges due to their Christian commitments. In such cases, maybe it is better because at least you know which things are not open to discussion. 
In contrast, at sexual institutions, very little is spelled out, and yet there are limits. There's something to this argument that should not be too quickly ignored. By having a doctrinal statement that everyone is expecting to endorse, the limitations are made public. Most evangelical colleges even have statements on their websites. Yet, as always, the devil is in the details. Normally, it's not published on those websites or anywhere else, is exactly what those statements and individual clauses mean, and more important, what those statements entail. In regard to the former, if the clause concerns something like the inerrancy of the Bible, what does it mean to say the Bible has no errors? In other words, define the word error. This seems like an easy task unless you try and actually do it. Alternatively, by entailments, I simply mean this. If you believe X, what other things are you thereby affirming, however implicitly? I was shocked when the new president asserted that the doctrinal statement ruled out abortion. This was news to me. As far as I can see, there isn't a single sentence in that statement that could support such a view. Moreover, the previous president didn't take that to be the case, which means that the goalposts and limits are constantly changing. And this gets us to a particularly problematic aspect of teaching at any such institution. Often, you really don't know what you can't say or cannot say. As my former colleague, Lurisha Hawkins, discovered, saying that Jews, Christians, and Muslims believe in the same God was fine for Pope Francis to say, but not okay for an evangelical. Specifically, she posted a picture of herself and her job with the following caption, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. But of course, she didn't know this was problematic until she had already said it. While Laricia's story was picked up by the media across the world, I don't know if most people know that the previous president of the school had allowed for an interfaith service on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. When the new president arrived, this was one of the things he canceled, because he didn't think it was right that Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and other such people should be sharing the same stage in chapel. It should go without saying that documents such as doctrinal statements are not self-interpreting, though perhaps our current cultural and political climate would benefit from more people actually saying that more often. The stability of a doctrinal statement depends on who gets to do the defining and determining the entailments. The president, under whom I taught for many years, claimed that he and the board of trustees were the ones who determined the meaning of the doctrinal statement. But of course, if that's the case, then what you can believe or think can change from one administration to another. You can literally go from being right to being wrong, depending on who's in charge. With this point in mind, the argument that evangelical colleges are more upfront about their prohibitions than secular institutions loses, I think, a good deal of its force because it depends on, one, how narrowly or broadly those documents are interpreted, two, how far-reaching those entailments go, and three, who gets to define both of those two things. I'm sure this varies from one evangelical institution to another. So one needs to know the culture of the institution in order to understand how its principal documents have been interpreted and what the entailments are as a result. But then we are right back to the situation found on secular campuses, namely that there are unwritten codes about what you can and cannot say. Since they are unwritten, a faculty member has to figure them out by asking colleagues who may or may not be forthcoming, often out of fear. So not only is discussion limited by explicit statements, 
It is likewise limited by all of the implicit statements that go along with them. And one may not find out what those implicit statements are until one has already said something that conflicts with them. But by then, it's too late. If you add into the equation that the doctrinal statements of most evangelical colleges take a lot off the table for discussion to begin with, then it is hard to think that evangelical colleges really have that much intellectual freedom as might be ideally desired for an academic institution, regardless of its religious affiliation. There's a further problem with teaching at such an institution, one that comes up in the article I mentioned by Alan Wolfe. Here's what he says. Because its doctrinal statement is so committed to an evangelical Protestant understanding of God, Wheaton excludes Jews and most Catholics. There are a few Catholic students at the college, 14 out of the 2,732 last fall, some of whom converted in college and others who see no contradiction between their faith and the statement. But there are no Catholics on the faculty, and except for the four Jewish Christians, as the college calls Jews for Jesus, knows Jews at all. What would the college do, I asked Litvin, if a faculty member decided to convert to Catholicism? He would be asked if he might not be a little bit more comfortable working elsewhere. As it turns out, one of my colleagues, Joshua Hochschild, became a Roman Catholic in 2004. He was convinced that he could still sign the doctrinal statement. However, the president of the college was convinced that he couldn't sign it in good faith because the preamble to the doctrinal statement includes the phrase that the college stands and here's the quote, not only with the scriptures, but also with the reformers and the evangelical movement in recent years. Just to be clear, the president read that phrase as an explicit rejection of Catholicism's idea that holy tradition and scripture are co-equal in authority. As a Protestant, the president insisted that the Bible and the Bible alone is the final authority. Of course, given what I've said about the president identifying himself and the trustees as the final interpreters of the doctrinal statement, doesn't that make them, in effect, the magisterium? Bibles, like all other books, do not interpret themselves. By the way, I haven't mentioned this before, but now might be a good time. In my bid for tenure, I met with the president a lot. At two different points in our conversation, he said that he was holding me to a higher standard because of what I taught. You might think, oh, well, he's worried about philosophy. And that was probably true, too. You might think, oh, he's worried about the fact that you teach figures like Derrida and Nietzsche. You'd definitely be right about that. But it was actually the fact that I taught hermeneutics and that I sided with Gautamer that made the president uneasy about keeping me on. He and I disagreed on lots of things, but we both agreed that hermeneutics is where the rubber hits the road. As I say, the culture wars are all about hermeneutics. As it turns out, here is what Josh said about his own situation. I expected to lose my job upon converting to Catholicism, and I acknowledged the college right to exclude Catholics. I have never challenged this right. Joshua was allowed to teach the following year for the practical reason that he needed a job, but then he had to leave. What's important here is the fact that he didn't intend to become Catholic when he started teaching. Instead, he slowly came to believe that Roman Catholicism was where he felt at home. Let's go back to that article by Alan Wolfe. He brings up what he calls the loyalty oath problem by referring to the argument made by Stanley Fish when he was dean at the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Fish contends that there simply isn't academic freedom. I suspected Fish had re read Foucault and realized that he couldn't just say anything. 
But then Wolf goes on to say the following. Fisher's attack on what is generally thought of as academic freedom, indeed his general hostility toward liberalism, plays well in the evangelical world, too well. For whereas Fish spent his entire career in institutions that permit a wide variety of points of view, most evangelical scholars have not. It is this proclivity towards illiberalism that best explains why so many evangelical institutions insist on statements of faith. Contrary to what some evangelicals will say in moments of anger, liberals are not always hostile to faith, but they do tend to be hostile to oaths. The revivalist tradition in conservative Protestantism was built on the willingness of people to stand up in public and proclaim their sins and the joy that followed when they let Jesus into their life. A requirement that students and faculty members sign a declaration is a legacy of that tradition, one that is bound to make a modern liberal feel uncomfortable. The mere existence of any such statement, let alone insisting on its periodic affirmation, would be rightly considered hostile to academic freedom. What made teaching in an evangelical institution, particularly in a department like philosophy, so challenging was that we were, in effect, forced to do two things at once that are not fully compatible. As a philosopher, it's my job to ask questions and then to follow where those questions lead. When you start questioning things, which, by the way, I highly recommend, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Gadamer reminds us that and here I'm quoting, to ask a question means to bring into the open, which is to say that it's like opening something up without knowing where that opening is going to lead. Yet my other job was to stay within the bounds of evangelical thought. Of course, we've already discussed the issue of who creates these boundaries and who gets to decide when they are crossed. Unfortunately, it was often the provost, who had absolutely zero theological education, who got to decide. So at the end of the day, it was really the opinions of the administration that served as the magisterium. Not surprisingly, evangelicals have an answer to the argument that loyalty oaths or doctrinal statements are somehow restrictive. As the president of my former institution wrote in 1998, we in Christian higher education believe that a healthy academic marketplace of ideas will view academic freedom as the right not only of individuals, but also of those institutions made up of voluntary groups or communities of individuals. Here's what Wolf writes in response. Yet there are still reasons to shudder at the whole idea of statements of faith. When careers are at stake, it's hard to take seriously Litvin's insistence that signing Wheaton's declaration is a purely voluntary act. And once such a statement exists, so will the temptation to wield it punitively. I've already given you a number of instances in which it has been used punitively, so that shouldn't come as any surprise. Wolf points out that whereas in the world of Roman Catholic higher education, Wolf was then teaching at Boston College, there is enough diversity and room for different theological perspectives. In contrast, the world of evangelicalism is much smaller and much less tolerant of diverse opinions. As Wolf puts it, Evangelical Christianity has porous boundaries, and thus signing a statement of faith regarding its tenets inherently presents problems. For if the meanings of evangelicalism can be expanded to include denominations that were once included, why, in the name of Christian scholarship, cannot be expanded to include Catholics? Unless there really isn't a clear answer here. As I pointed out, the nature of the evangelical magisterium is such that it just doesn't need to justify itself because it knows itself to be correct. But I want to end with a question. 
are evangelical colleges at risk of sliding from neo-evangelicalism to something like neo-fundamentalism? In other words, are evangelical colleges, or perhaps evangelicals in general, making a retreat from the world and embracing a new sort of solitude? Fundamentalism is not just about standing for the truth, but doing so in a way in which one purposely separates oneself from the world. Here I should point out that this question cannot be answered simply by saying, this is what evangelical colleges are intending to do. The famous principle of double effect is that you might intend to do X, and in so doing also do Y. Thus, I'm not asking whether evangelicals are explicitly moving to neo-fundamentalism. Instead, I'm asking whether, given the ways in which they're responding to the world around them, neo-fundamentalism is actually the direction they're heading, even without them realizing or intending to do so. My impression of evangelical colleges is that they are hunkering down, rightly realizing that they're increasingly in the minority when it comes to academic institutions generally, and more specifically, the broad trends of cultural awareness and political orientations of the students they have traditionally attracted. And this gets us to the whole motivation of fear. Fundamentalism was motivated by the fear of the modernists. But were evangelicals ever able to get beyond that fundamentalist fear? I wonder if that fear, which at best went underground in evangelicalism, was really running the show all along, has now become so acute that in place of the expansion of the world at large, evangelical colleges are slowly creeping back toward their fundamentalist strongholds. It seems that they are not just holding on to the fundamentals of faith, as it were, but are seeking a new sort of double separation from anything that is other than their own interpretation of those fundamentals and the entailments of that interpretation. That fear of the other might be understood as directed toward liberal Christians with whom they cannot associate for fear of being made unclean, or perhaps it can be seen in all too thinly veiled attacks on Muslims, or even completely unveiled attacks on gays and transgender people. Or, and perhaps this is the most troubling for both the church and the academy, maybe it is most often manifest in the difficulty of evangelical colleges, and for that matter, evangelical churches, coping with faculty and students who simply ask too many questions. That's all for today's episode. If you liked what you've heard, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.